everyone. This is Mireille Gino, and you are listening to the New Books in African American Studies podcast. Today, we have as our guest Professor David Krugler, author of 1919, The Year of Racial Violence, How African Americans Fought Back, published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, Professor Krugler, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here, Mary. Great. Um, I wonder if you'd uh, just begin uh, by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, I've been a professor at the University of Wisconsin uh, at Platteville for 17 and a half years now. I was fortunate enough to obtain this position when I finished up my graduate work at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I studied U.S. history. I'm actually trained as a Cold War historian, and a lot of my uh, early research and publications are on Cold War topics But while I was at the University of Illinois, I had the good fortune to study African-American history with Professor Juliet E.K. Walker, who's now at the University of Texas, and I served as her research assistant for a couple of years. So that really stimulated my interest in African-American history. And I always had in the back of my mind that um, if I got uh, tired with or just needed a break from the Cold War, uh, that I would turn to African-American history. Uh, and so that's what led me to 1919. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, okay, so so I take it the the, uh, the the needed break from the Cold War did come um, at some point. Yes, and uh, my initial interest was in America right after uh, World War One. Uh, 1919 was not just a year of racial violence, but uh, a year of much upheaval in the United States and globally. So, uh, like a lot of uh, authors, I didn't set out to write the book that became 1919, The Year of Racial Violence. I set out to write a book um, that was more of a narrative history uh, of 1919, uh, focusing on strikes uh, and labor problems and uh, economic issues Uh, and the Red Scare. Um, But the more I studied the problem, the more I realized that um, the topic that really needed uh, some special uh, was uh, the racial violence of of 1919 in the United States, and in particular, African Americans' uh, response to it. Uh, So the more research I did, uh, the more I was drawn into that aspect of um, this tumultuous year uh, in U.S. history. And, um, and you do describe um, this tumultuous year as a three-front uh, war, and I'm wondering if you could describe for us what those um, three fronts are. Sure. Uh, the first front is the armed resistance that African Americans mounted uh, against continual uh, and very intense outbreaks of white mob violence uh, during 1919. This armed resistance, this self-defense took place in the streets, uh, in the cities and towns, where mob violence occurred, um, mount, armed self-resistance was mounted against lynch mobs uh, as well. Uh, so that's the first front, and that was the the most effective front in many ways in the short term against white mob violence. The second front is what I call the battle for the truth or the battle for the facts and accurate information about the riots. The press coverage at the time overwhelmingly blamed African Americans for violence that organized white mobs had actually initiated. And and here, African Americans were really doubly victimized because they had first been attacked, physically attacked, but then by mounting self-defense, they were blamed for the violence, even though they were taking uh, measures to defend themselves when uh, local authorities, including police and sometimes federal troops called in, uh, were not providing such protection. So the black press, journalists like um, James Weldon Johnson uh, and Robert Abbott of the Chicago Defender, recognized the need and swift information about the riots so that uh, the prevailing narrative that uh, somehow African Americans were to blame could be countered. And that fed right into the third front, which was the fight or the struggle for justice uh, in the courts. Uh, And here, uh, the struggle was much more long-term. Right away, uh, black lawyers and specially organized committees of the NAACP 
provided legal assistance to African Americans who were being charged with very serious crimes for defending themselves uh, during uh, the riots, particularly the urban riots. Um, and I should note here that uh, African Americans were being charged with crimes that whites were not, uh, and that called for legal defense. Uh, and in the more long-term defense, African Americans uh, needed to be defended against capital crimes, and this led to some important Supreme Court decisions uh, along the way. So that's the three-front war that was mounted by African Americans against white mob violence during 1919. Okay, and that's also a nice uh, sort of outline of the of the book itself. Um, so if we uh, kind of move, uh, start moving into into the chapters of the book, the first your first chapter uh, deals with World War One and the New Negro Movement, um, and so it would be. Great, I think, uh, for our listeners uh, to sort of uh, for you to contextualize again the um, the armed resistance um, within the the new Negro movement, um, what it is, um, how it informs um, this resistance to anti-black violence. Sure, um, we often associate the the new Negro movement with the Harlem Renaissance that came after World War One, but it's uh, the war. There, it's a part of a turn of the century movement, in part led by the black elite, by uh, the black middle class, to try and regain lost voting rights, which had been unconstitutionally stripped, to establish respectability for both black men uh, and women, and to counter uh, the rising racial violence um, occurring in the United States uh, against African Americans. Uh, the New Negro Movement also had a radical element to it as uh, socialists um, like Hubert Harrison um, lended their voices to alternatives to uh, the American system uh, and proposed ways to um, diminish or even eradicate white supremacy. Uh, socialists like A. Philip Randolph and Chandler Owen were also part of this movement as well. And even before the American entry into World War I, and certainly before uh, resistance to white mob violence, um, a big component of the New Negro movement was standing up to lynch mobs, standing up to the violent assertion of white supremacy. That then combined with African Americans' military service during World War I and uh, the widespread support African Americans on the home front gave to that war effort. Uh, as Woodrow Wilson, President Woodrow Wilson, declared when he asked the United States to go into war, the world must be, safe, ma world must be made safe for democracy. Uh, and for African Americans, uh, the mission became America must be made safe for democracy. And so the military service of uh, more than 360,000 black men and the support black women gave to that military service uh, and the domestic support for the war fed into the new Negro uh, and brought resolution and determination uh, to make America safe for democracy and stop racial violence in the United States should it reassert itself or continue, I should say, because it did occur during the war as well. Yeah, and um, and to that point, uh, the this early chapter is is where you make your first mention, I think, of the of the intersection of black self defense and black masculinity. Um, and I wonder if, uh, as, as we proceed, if you can uh, sort of talk about that as it relates to um, the return of uh, servicemen um, post war. Sure. Um, I think the most important thing to know is that in the Army, a lot of African Americans were exposed to New Negro ideology, particularly Southern blacks who uh, had led mostly localized lives and hadn't traveled or even spent much time outside uh, of the farms where their families sharecropped or the towns uh, in which they did trade. Uh, and so this was an eye-opening experience for them and certainly to be uh, in a foreign country. Uh, and this mingling helped spread the new Negro ideology 
just as important was the discrimination and, and segregation that African-American enlisted men and officers uh, faced in, in the U.S. Army. Uh, and in the book, I try to provide some representative examples uh, of the discrimination uh, African-Americans uh, faced. And just to cite one example, um, a lot of African-Americans were channeled into labor brigades or battalions uh, to do the hard work of digging ditches and unloading equipment, hard manual labor, uh, because uh, white army officers did not believe they were fit for combat, uh, even though uh, segregated black combat units proved themselves again and again uh, in combat. So we have hundreds of thousands of young black men who returned to the United States with military training, uh, with the pride of their military service, and a recognition that what they had done in combat on, on the Western Front and the Musargan uh, offensive, for example, late in the war, uh, put the lie to white supremacists' claims that uh, they were incapable uh, and thus also undeserving of the rights of uh, all Americans. Right, and, the, and the examples... Um that you focus on in, in, in your second chapter in Charleston, um, South Carolina, Bisbee, Arizona, and Longview, uh, Texas. And um, again, sort of going through that uh, sort of role of, of civil and military authorities in, in anti-black uh, mob violence. Uh, one of the, the Longview, Texas um, example is particularly interesting, I think, uh, because it's one of, I, I think, only two incidents that you describe as, as, as a pogrom. Um, in the in the in the book, and I wonder if you would sort of talk about that um, that distinction that you're making between uh, race riots, which you're which you do use as a, as a shorthand, um, and and pogroms as a really specific uh, term. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, some some scholars of race riots use pogrom um, a lot more uh, than I do, um, and. What they're doing is adapting um, a Russian word uh, as we know, refers to a violent anti-Jewish campaigns mounted in, in Russia and often uh, mounted with the support of the czarist regime. And that's a key part of the program, that it had state sanction. And that's why scholars such as Charles Lumpkins in his study of the East St. Louis riot of 1917 or Ann V. Collins in her uh, study of uh, racial violence in the United States from the late 19th century to the mid 20th century used pogrom because of the, the state sanction. I decided to use it more sparingly uh, and to use it only to refer to episodes where the intent to, to kill African Americans was, was so clear and the evidence so overwhelming um, that use of the word was warranted. And I think that does apply to Longview. Uh, because of the intent to burn uh, the homes and to perhaps even burn alive individuals who were being targeted by the mob for their for their actions that had um, questioned or uh, resisted white supremacy's uh, structure and application in in Longview. Uh, the the biggest example of a pogrom during 1919 um, is what happened in Phillips County, Arkansas, where Estimates of of the of the deaths of, of African Americans um, are are as high as the hundreds. I, I don't think we'll ever know how many people were killed, not just by mobs, um, but by federal troops called in. Uh, that certainly qualifies as a pogrom. Um, you noted that um, I use the word race riot for shorthand. Um, and it is, I think, perhaps stylistically the, the best word we have. It's the one that's most commonly used. Um, but I ask readers to accept it as a synonym for anti-black collective violence because in almost every instance of violence documented in the book, um, white mobs initiated it. A, a riot suggests that somehow all sides are equally to blame, uh, and that just wasn't the case in 1919. That's and that's interesting um, as well as we if we move into your uh, third chapter that um, 
this distribution of culpability, um, uh, the, the subtitle of, uh, rather the, the title of chapter three is fighting a mob in uniform armed resistance in Washington, DC. And there you discuss the transition to peacetime in the, in the nation's capital. Um, and so again, you're sort of dealing with, uh, with uniformed mobs. And I wonder if you would, uh, again, sort of talk about, talk about that, the sort of the balance of, uh, of, uh, the mobs versus those who uh, resisted resisted them. Sure. Um, one of the um, interesting aspects of U.S. mobilization for World War One is the breathtaking speed with which the military services demobilized um, in the winter of 1919 and into the spring. Hundreds of thousands of white and black enlisted men, millions even, when we bring up all the totals from France on troop transport ships uh, and being deposited in major eastern seaboard ports, Charleston uh, and New York among them, mustering out um, with some severance pay and the right to wear their uniforms for three months after uh, discharge, as long as they had a red chevron on their uh, shoulder, uh, and then set on their way. Um, as I mentioned earlier, 1919 is a year of uh, a lot of economic turmoil. There's strikes, the demobilization, the cancellation of wartime contracts leads to layoffs. So you've got all of these uh, veterans looking for work. And in the case of Washington, D.C., uh, hundreds of white veterans sort of trickled into the capital, even if they were not from Washington, uh, hoping to find work. Uh, and few of them did because the War Department, the Navy Department, all of the wartime agencies created were shedding jobs. So with little to do, uh, they idled around. Washington was implementing prohibition, but there were near beer saloons. So a lot of these guys hung out there. They were in amusement galleries and shooting galleries. And they were socializing with and, and having a lot of contact with um, men who remained in uniform. Uh, but they were almost all white because the army was busy mustering out all of its black soldiers. Uh, and this is a function, again, of that discrimination. There were so many white officers who didn't believe African-Americans should be a part of the peacetime army. In the summer of 1919, there were reports of a, of a serial rapist. And, and the evidence for some of the rapes is pretty conclusive. Others, um, there's just no way to determine whether they occurred. Um, Although the first victim was was a black woman, the the four newspapers of Washington D.C. dwelled on on subsequent victims who were white uh, and the description of the of the suspect, uh, a young black man, and this led to to a lot of grumbling uh, among Washington residents and these newcomers that the police were not taking care of the problem and that they needed to do so. Uh, and so after an incident in which a young white woman reported being jostled uh, and menaced by two black men on a, on a weekend night, um, what I call a mob in uniform uh, came together. Uh, and it's telling that the point of formation was a Knights of Columbus hut on uh, right downtown on 9th and Pennsylvania, which provided refreshments and, and uh, services for uh, veterans, it became an easy point to congregate. And I think it tells us, um, you know, how these groups that had come to the city and were in the city uh, came together and, and why. Yeah, and that's really interesting. It's, a, it, it's um, again, um, particularly in light of the, of the, the chapter that follows that, that covers, uh, I think, one of the um, one of the better known, perhaps, um, uh, riots, which which took place in in Chicago, and there again, you sort of have this flashpoint created with um, you said sort of uh, immigrants, I guess, of a, of a different kind, right? Not not sort of economic um, migrants, as you discuss in in um, in, in the DC chapter, but um, Irish immigrants as well as uh, African Americans. Uh, were part of the the great migration. Um, the 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 chapter is is set out um, 
sort of conveniently for the reader uh, in terms of uh, sort of subchapters like the spark and the blaze. And I wonder if you would sort of take us through um, the, if you could set up what leads to the spark and the eventual blaze um, that, that constitute this riot. Sure. Uh, as you, as you note, the, the Chicago riot is, is one of the most well-known uh, including the incident uh, that, that sparked it, um, the drowning of a young black teenager uh, named Eugene Williams, who um, was on a homemade raft with uh, several friends on, on a very hot late July day uh, in Chicago. Uh, and their raft was drifting by a, a beach that was by custom and local enforcement, though not by law, white only. Uh, and uh, a young white man in his 20s named George Stauber began throwing rocks from the breakwater at the raft. And what's interesting about that situation is that uh, one of Eugene Williams' friends reported later, he actually told historian William Tuttle almost 50 years later, uh, that they regarded the rock throwing as kind of a game because they could see them coming. Uh, But in a one in a million shot, one of those rocks hit Eugene in the head, and he was not a strong swimmer, and it caused him to drown. And that was the spark. But what was going on in Chicago before this tragic incident led to the blaze. Uh, there had been a fight earlier on the white-only beach on the day that Eugene Williams drowned when black beachgoers had entered and declared their intention to use that lakefront space, uh, just like anyone else. And they had been driven away by by white men uh, at the beach. Uh, And this had led to more African-Americans coming to the beach, and a rock-throwing fight had actually broken out. And so I think we can conjecture that maybe George Stauber had been a part of that, and and so he started throwing uh, rocks at John Harris, who was one of the other, was one of Eugene Williams' friends uh, on the raft. When the police arrived, uh, they did not arrest George Stauber, even though he was identified uh, by two of Eugene Williams. Uh, And instead, uh, a black man was arrested. And and this led to um, a reaction, a response by African-Americans on the beach, one of anger. And so rocks were thrown at the police, shots were fired, and then the riot began. Uh, and the larger cause of the blaze, too, was what uh, one scholar has called ecological warfare. There had been a lot of tensions and attacks on African Americans who were moving into predominantly uh, majority white neighborhoods and predominantly Irish American neighborhoods uh, on the south side uh, in neighborhoods like Bridgeport and, and um, Canaryville. And so some gangs dominated by uh, Irish-American youth swung into action and began attacking black-occupied homes. They were very calculated attacks, uh, and the purpose was to drive them away. So that's sort of the structural underlying cause uh, of this well-known riot. Um, There's a... sort of a parallel riot that you identify or call a, uh, the fictional riot. Um, and this, I think, um, sort of points to the, the second front of the, the three front war, uh, that the book, um, that the book discusses. And I wonder if you would, um, say some more about that. Sure. Sure. And this brings us back to the role of, of black veterans in, in fighting that first front, uh, mounting armed resistance. Uh, Illinois, uh, had sent, um, an all-black National Guard unit, the uh, 8th Illinois, uh, to France. And it was federalized and, and renamed the 370th uh, Regiment. Uh, and it had uh, distinguished itself greatly uh, in combat. Uh, and when the 370th returned in February of 1919, it was greeted with um, an extraordinary Michigan and Wabash Avenues uh, in downtown Chicago, uh, and the veterans and their families um, uh, were even addressed by uh, Chicago's white mayor, Big Bill Thompson, uh, who relied a lot on, on black votes uh, for his electoral victories, uh, and he praised their service. Um, so these, these men come back, they, they go to work, they're living in Chicago. When the riot breaks out and police 
proved to be ineffective in stopping attacks on African Americans, uh, dozens of these men put on their uniforms and some even pin on the Croix de Guerre that they had received for their combat distinction from, from the French government. Uh, and they take up arms. Um, I was not, not quite able to determine where these arms came from, but they definitely had uh, rifles. There are some sources that suggest they went to their armory uh, on the south side uh, and took arms from there. Uh, but they patrolled the streets to provide protection that authorities were not giving to African Americans being targeted by mob attacks. But in Chicago's major dailies, um, the Chicago Tribune, uh, among other papers, uh, the Daily News, uh, what was reported was something that sounds like a script from uh, Birth of a Nation, in which black veterans were supposedly terrorizing whites. Uh, one account even claimed that um, a shot was fired at a policeman, but the bullet bounced off his badge. Uh, and these stories, these accounts are just absolutely false. Uh and it shows us, again, the importance of the second front because the black press had to counter these narratives so that the truth was known about, about the blaze. Um, and at the, as part of the, um, at the end of, the, at the end of this, uh, of this uh, fourth chapter, which uh, incidentally is, is titled Blood in the Streets, um, you conclude, um, I think in part, uh, based on what, you, what you've just said, that the, the new Negro had arrived. Um, and I, I wonder uh, if you would expand on, on that notion. Sure. I, I think um, the reason I, I, I um, described it that way is because the Chicago riot came just days after Washington, D.C.'s riot. Both occurred in, in July. Uh, Washington's was, was mid-July uh, and Chicago's was late July. Um, because these were two of America's most populous cities, and one was, uh, of course, the nation's capital, um, they received much more attention than the previous sites of, of, of rioting and resistance, uh, Charleston uh, and Longview, uh, as we discussed earlier. Uh, and so people began asking themselves, well, what's going on? Uh, why is there all this violence? Uh, and for a lot of white Americans reading the press coverage in, in the major papers and, and reading stories that appear in the New York Times. Um, what they think is that, that African-Americans are mounting some sort of uprising and, and are to blame. The black press counters and says, no, let's, let's look at the true causes uh, of violence here. Uh, what happens in Chicago? Uh, James Weldon Johnson, um, who was writing in the New York Age, a black newspaper that received national distribution, uh, provided careful and thoughtful evidence and, and a searing indictment of, of the cause of Washington's riot. I called it an exhibition of savagery by soldiers in the uniform of the United States government. Where is democracy, uh, he asked. So that's a rhetorical expression uh, of the New Negro uh, and the resistance that was mounted in Chicago uh, and Washington um, showed the first front uh, occurring, uh, and and that was celebrated as well. And so that's why I chose to say here's this this moment of arrival um, and awareness too. Interesting. Um, yeah. So the 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 fifth and sixth chapters both deal with um, with again, with armed resistance, right, to so that first, uh, that first front, um, and the, the first, ch uh, chapter five, um, deals with armed resistance to the courthouse mobs, and in it, you, uh, discuss, uh, two, two cases, uh, one in, in Knoxville, Tennessee, the other in Omaha, Nebraska, and this seems to be, uh, sort of a widening of the, of the, of the target, um, for, for, for the mobs. And I wonder if you would sort of talk about what precipitates this uh, broader, broader target. Sure. Uh, the first of these two occurs in Knoxville. Um, and uh, the Knoxville and Omaha episodes are, are, are called the courthouse riots because in both cases, white mobs stormed courthouses in the city centers uh, in order to seize uh, black prisoners accused of crimes against white women. In Knoxville, the mob failed to seize its intended victim, 
and, and lynch him because the sheriff had removed him. There's a young man named uh, Maurice Mays, and he was uh, falsely accused uh, of raping uh, a white woman. Um, he had been taken away uh, in secrecy uh, to Chattanooga, uh, but that did not deter the mob, which turned its fury on the courthouse, released white prisoners, um, vandalized the courthouse, and then moved to uh, the center of Knoxville to a ne- nearby neighborhood and began attacking uh, African Americans. Uh, and African Americans in the neighborhood around Vine and Central in Knoxville uh, mounted uh, self defense. Uh, in one prominent uh, instance, uh, American War, a local black uh, businessman named Joe Etter, he owned a secondhand clothing store, um, helped lead the resistance and, and lost his life. It's um, uh, accounts vary, but uh, one of them states that he was trying to disarm a machine gun nest that had been set up by um, all-white troops, uh, National Guard troops of, of Tennessee, uh, which had been called in to restore order. Uh, in the second episode, uh, in Omaha, um, a black laborer named Will Brown uh, was falsely uh, accused of rape and held in the courthouse. In this case, um, he was framed by a, a local politician who was seeking to discredit a reform-oriented mayor uh, and his police commissioner. In this case, the mob succeeded in, in seizing Brown uh, and lynched him um, and desecrated his, his body afterward. And as was the case in Knoxville, there was an intention to attack Omaha's black neighborhood. Um, but in this case, the mob did not foray into the black neighborhood because word had spread that uh, Omaha's black residents were were armed and ready to mount resistance, Uh, and so no such incursion uh, was made. And again, that's sort of an an, an echo, I guess, of the the end of Chapter 4, where you say this uh, um, word of this resistance is is making it... um, Sort of making it clear that uh, anti-black violence will be uh, continually met with uh, with armed resistance, um, and uh, that also I think uh, brings us into chapter six, um, which is uh, titled "Armed Resistance to Economic Exploitation: Arkansas, Indiana, and Louisiana." And in this chapter, uh, you describe the three riots to sort of close out nineteen um, nineteen uh, as as year of, of racial violence and um, and these three sites um, are, are are united by um, the the sort of agricultural um, industrial laborers and um, their sort of resistance to uh, exploitation and I wonder if you could talk about that and perhaps um, if it's not too much of a stretch, if you could also uh, sort of uh, discuss in the, the uh, some of the ways in which you see the um, see socialism um, informing the new Negro movement and how that might how those two things might uh, might be connected. Uh, sure. Uh, let's begin in in Phillips County, Arkansas, um, centered around the county seat of Helena, uh, Helena. Um, this was uh, in the Arkansas, it's in the Arkansas Delta, um, and a lot of its uh, economic base was, was sharecropping, producing cotton, um, but there was also a lot of uh, uh, timber extraction. A lot of industry uh, had moved in um, in the years uh, just before World War I. Uh, the prices of cotton had gone up because of the war, but with its end, um, there was widespread expectation uh, that the price would drop. At the same time, African-American sharecroppers were organizing a union and seeking to, at long last, get fair settlements for their share of the cotton produced because for years, decades even, they had been uh, regularly cheated uh, by uh, landowners uh, and were, in effect, uh, chained to the land in a form of, of debt peonage. Um, so in order to prevent... Uh, these fair settlements, and in order to break the union, uh, white landowners 
um, basically commissioned an attack on a, on a meeting uh, of one of the lodges of the Union uh, in a remote part of, of Phillips County uh, at a crossroads uh, really called Hoop Spur. Um, this, again, brought widespread violence, um, anti-black collective violence in the form of a posse, posses really, organized by uh, the sheriff uh, of Phillips County, uh, and armed resistance by black sharecroppers, uh, some of whom were veterans, but many of the leaders were not, yet they emulated the military training of, of veterans by organizing self-defense patrols. Um, as had been the case in other episodes of anti-black collective violence, um, troops were called in. And as I said earlier in the interview, um, in Arkansas, these troops carried out um, pretty open uh, and uh, deadly attacks on, on African Americans. So although the, the official death count is, is 25, um, it's almost certainly much higher. And, and one historian who's focused just on uh, this pogrom, this, this episode of racial violence, um, a scholar named Robert Whitaker, uh, has identified um, a couple dozen uh, killing sites, as he calls them, and, and based on that suggests the death count uh, is several hundred. Um, and the source of this, this killing, of, of this massacre, really was reassertion of, of economic control. Uh, um, and that's why I called it economic exploitation. And the other two uh, sites that close out the year of racial violence, Gary, Indiana, and Bogalusa, Louisiana, the violence directed against African Americans isn't as severe uh, or as deadly, but it shared the same purpose with uh, Arkansas. Um, restoring an economic order uh, that exploited labor. Um, that was especially true in Bogalusa, which was a southern lumber company, uh, dominated the economy uh, and local politics. There, white and black laborers for Great Southern were trying to organize a biracial union, and Great Southern used all the resources at its disposal, including a private army, uh, to crush that um, nascent union movement. Uh, in Gary, uh, we see much more of the, of the socialism uh, that did inform the new Negro movement. But it wasn't the majority of African-American workers in Gary in its, its uh, burgeoning steel mills who were attracted to socialism. Socialism was much more attractive to uh, European immigrants, uh, many of whom were very new arrivals in, in Gary, especially from Eastern European destinations. Uh, and so uh, some of the organization was for uh, socialist unions and, and socialists and communists were active uh, in uh, Gary, uh, but they didn't do a good job of attracting African Americans. There was also union activity on the part of the AFL, which was trying to organize the mills, and this led to a big shutdown, a big strike in the fall of 1919. The AFL uh, was not trying to work with the communists. Uh, it was trying to stay away from them in, in order to mount a successful union effort. But years of discrimination against black laborers had hurt the AFL, so it was unable to attract uh, African-American laborers. Uh, and so these residents of Gary often found themselves being scapegoated uh, by mill owners, by union leaders, uh, and by uh, some of the socialists active in Gary at the time. Okay, so the at the end of the chapter, you sort of talk about the um, uh, the response of African Americans um, in all three of these places, demonstrating sort of a readiness uh, to again assert um, assert their assert their rights, if not their, um, um, their sort of broad civil rights, but their, their rights to resist and their rights as, as, as workers. Um, and part of that, um, I think uh, leads us into the seventh chapter, uh, which has a, a title quote, which is, uh, quote, it is my only protection, end quote. And the subtitle is federal and state efforts to disarm African-Americans. And I think uh, it's a particularly interesting chapter, given its uh, sort of contemporary resonance with uh, sort of gun rights um, uh, laws and the, the discussion around around that. And I wonder if you'd um, sort of say more about that. 
Sure. Um, I'll, I'll start by describing a, a cartoon uh, that appears early in that chapter and which provides the, the quote uh, you just um, mentioned. Um, it appeared in the Washington, D.C. Black Weekly, The Washington Bee, just after Washington's riot. And it shows three figures. On the left, we have the largest of the three, uh, a looming figure entitled Mob Law. Uh, and it's an armed white man who is about to, who's, he's next to um, the central figure, um, who's the middle, the middle size in this, in, this, uh, in this array of three individuals. Um, the middle figure is a white police officer, and the third figure on the right is a well-dressed black man, and he's the smallest figure. Uh, the black man is holding a pistol, and his head is bandaged which suggests he's been hurt in the mob violence, the, the attacks that have taken place, and he's armed himself to defend himself. Out of one side of his mouth, the, the white police figure says to the black man, give me your gun. And out of the other side of his mouth, the policeman tells a law figure, wait till I disarm him, uh, suggesting that the police were condoning uh, attacks on blacks and even facilitating them um, by disarming African-Americans. Uh, aware that this is happening, the black figure in the cartoon says, it is my only protection. Uh, and that points to a larger effort underway in 1919, one that was coordinated by the federal government um, through the Military Intelligence Division and the Bureau of Investigation, which was a forerunner of the FBI, um, coordinated between the federal government and local gun dealers and, and local police and sheriffs uh, to obstruct the sale of legal weapons to African Americans. And this was really a response to the first front that African Americans were carrying out, the, the armed self-defense where and when the law prevail, uh, failed to provide protection against white mob attacks. Uh, much of the intelligence analysis in the Military Intelligence Division, the Bureau of Investigation, was based upon the hypothesis, on the assumption uh, that African Americans were organizing an uprising and that radicals, socialists and communists, were to blame uh, for it. And even though the evidence they acquired did not um, support convincingly such a conclusion, uh, that only caused a lot of uh, Bureau of Investigation agents and, and officers in the, the Military Intelligence Division to spend more time monitoring radicals and, and communists because they believed they were just missing the connection uh, when in fact, right in front of them was was the the overwhelming evidence that what was going on was a response to white mob attacks. Interesting. And um, the 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 last two chapters. Uh, no, I'm sorry. The the uh, chapters eight and nine are are. Both again, sort of begin with the title, the the fight for justice, and the first, uh, the sort of first part of this um, to take up in chapter eight uh, deals uh, specifically with the arrests and trials um, of black and white rioters. And I wonder if you can sort of give us an, a sense of, of what distinguished um, the uh, the arrests and trials of, of the black rioters versus the the white rioters. Uh, sure, um, and I'll, I'll use uh, Washington and uh, Omaha uh, as examples. In Washington, D.C., the arrest records show that overwhelmingly uh, black men were, were taken in by the police, and we do have reliable evidence that in many cases they were, they were beaten uh, and, and kicked by, by 10 or more police officers uh, within police precincts uh, and then uh, taken to jail. Um, the next day, they were charged with, with carrying concealed weapons and, and, and other crimes, while only a handful of, of white rioters uh, were charged. Uh, and Washington, which had a very active and effective uh, branch of the NAACP, uh, sent members who were attorneys uh, into courts to protest 
um, this misjustice. Uh, and in Washington, they were able to convince two white police court judges um, to more fairly apply the law. Uh, and in only one instance was a, a, an African-American defendant uh, given a severe uh, penalty uh, for carrying a weapon. And, and one of the black lawyers even commented privately that this was probably deserved. In the other cases, it wasn't. And they were able to secure a lessening of the charges or even a dropping of them. Um, they weren't able to convince authorities to charge more whites with rioting and attacking uh, blacks. But at least in Washington, they came away with, with that small victory. Omaha is a little bit different, but but just as revealing uh, about the way justice was, was being pursued in, in 1919. Uh, there, there was a lot of evidence of, of who had rioted. There were photographs of people uh, proudly posing around the body of, of Will Brown, uh, the mob's victim. Uh, and police and federal troops, which were called in, used photographs and, and eyewitness accounts to round up uh, rioters. And in another part of, the, um, of Omaha's upheaval, uh, the mob had tried to lynch the city's white mayor, who had appeared before the crowd and, and, and pleaded for uh, order. Um, he wasn't killed, but he was hurt badly uh, in this incident. So the local authorities really wanted to and punish those who had destroyed the courthouse and caused millions of dollars of damage. They wanted to um, try the, uh, uh, the, those who had attempted to lynch the mayor, and, and they brought charges against those uh, for whom there was evidence of involvement in the death of, of Will Brown. But although many of these cases went to trial, there were no convictions, no major convictions of those responsible for the death of, of Will Brown, the falsely charged black men, no convictions in the attempted lynching of the mayor, Ed Smith, and no convictions for the damage to the courthouse. And, and the major reason why is because eyewitnesses did not want to come forward and speak, uh, and there was a lot of sympathy on the part of some jurors to the defendants because they believed what they had done was not really all that bad, that they had been carrying out what the historian Michael Pfeiffer calls rough justice, not wanting the courts to take their time to go through the uh, process of trying someone, uh, uh, trying Will Brown charged with a crime against a white woman. They wanted to take the law into their own hands. This was so often a motive of lynch mobs. And so jurors effectively condoned rough justice by not, convicting uh, white rioters, even when there was overwhelming evidence of their involvement. Uh, this also occurred in, in Charleston, to, uh, excuse me, in Knoxville, uh, the other courthouse riot. Well, in the, um, the Knoxville riot and the um, Arkansas pogrom, uh, as you discussed in, in um, the subsequent chapter, um, both had uh, sort of high profile uh, death penalty cases um, and, uh, and I, I wonder if you would sort of, um, tie that into, to earlier chapters as well. Sure. Uh, in the first case, uh, Maurice Mays, um, the young man falsely accused of raping a white woman was brought back to Knoxville just days after its riot and, and put on trial. Um, and he was quickly convicted and his parents, uh, led a heroic effort uh, to try and win um, a new trial uh, and to obtain a verdict uh, of not guilty. And because of some problems in which the death penalty was imposed upon um, Mays, there was a, a technical error in what the judge had done because of a recent change to Tennessee law. His attorneys, Maurice Mays' attorneys, were able to secure a new trial uh, but it again led to a very swift and hasty guilty verdict. Uh, and despite subsequent appeals and some late arriving support from the national office of the NAACP, um, Maurice Mays was, was put to death in the early 1920s. And there should be no doubt that he was innocent of the crime for which he was charged because rapes continued to occur 
in Knoxville, even while Maurice Mays was on trial, they were occurring. Um, there was a predator uh, loose in Knoxville, and he was never caught. And even though Mays' attorneys tried to call to the stand women who had been attacked while Maurice Mays was in prison and on trial, uh, the judge did not allow the all-white male jury to hear this testimony. And much as the juries had condoned the actions of white rioters in the name of justice, it's pretty clear that the, the jurors in all of Mays' trials um, believed that because of the charge that this was a black man accused of a crime against a white woman, uh, that uh, he needed to be put to death for that. Didn't support such a verdict. The outcome of the trials of uh, black self-defenders in Arkansas has a happier ending. In that case, 12 individuals who were tortured to offer false confessions of a conspiracy to kill whites in Phillips County, Arkansas, um, were eventually freed when the NAACP, uh, which supported their cases at first secretly and then openly, convinced the Supreme Court to hear the cases in which uh, the NAACP argued the men had been deprived of uh, due process in their 14th uh, Amendment rights. And, and the Supreme Court, in a very important case uh, called Moore v. Dempsey, ruled that states must assure uh, defendants of a fair trial, that it wasn't just the federal obligation under the Constitution. And although it took some time, it led to the eventual release of all 12 of these defendants who had been facing almost certain death um, after hasty convictions following uh, their torture and, and, and the extracted confessions. This is uh, all part of the, the third front, uh, the fight for justice. Uh, and it was a fight that went on for years. Uh, as I mentioned, the Morby Dempsey case was not settled until 1923, four years uh, after the riot. So this was a, a long-term struggle, but one that brought much success. And I think it's a, it's a particularly poignant um, uh, chapter for that, for that reason, just because it's, uh, the, the victories come at such, uh, such great personal, personal cost to, everyone involved. Um, the, the last chapter of the book as, is uh, Fighting Judge Lynch. And, um, and, and yeah, I, would, I, I just I would love for you to, to sort of explain the, um, what that means um, in sort of the, the broadest sense possible. Sure. Well, a lot of the, the racial violence that we've been talking about and that's uh, profiled in detail in the book, um, particularly um, the Knoxville and Omaha episodes, uh, really are about, about lynch mobs forming and, and, and trying to carry out rough justice, targeting individuals charged with crimes against uh, whites. Um, throughout 1919, there were dozens and dozens um of lynchings um, across the United States, uh, predominantly in the South, but elsewhere uh, too, uh, as I talk about in, in, in that final chapter, um, for much the same reasons, um, African Americans accused of, of crimes against whites. In some cases, um, African Americans were lynched for failing to respectfully address a white person or failing to yield a vehicle uh, on a road. A black veteran was lynched for refusing to take off his uniform, uh, even though, uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, it was um, legal for veterans to wear their uniforms for many weeks after their discharge. But that was taken as an assertion of equality with whites, and, and that was unacceptable uh, in the Arkansas town uh, where that man, Wilbur Little, uh, lost his life. Um, just as they were doing in the major urban riots, uh, and in the small town riots like Longview, Texas, uh, African Americans um, took up arms to resist uh, lynch mobs and in some cases uh, organized to prevent what they feared would be the formation of a lynch mob. A prominent example of this in 1919 occurred in Coatesville, Pennsylvania, uh, which had experienced a, uh, a gruesome lynching of an African American uh, in 1911. Um, and many of the African-Americans who came together uh, were fearing that um, 
another mob was forming. Uh, it was based on rumors, and the rumors turned out to be false. Uh, but at the time, uh, that wasn't known. Um, and so that's an example of, of uh, this, this armed resistance being carried out uh, against lynch mobs. Uh, so it's not just about the big, the big riots or the big outbreaks of anti-black collective violence. It's about the smaller ones uh, as well. And in that chapter, I, I also trace the, the second and third fronts against lynching, the, the fight for the truth about various uh, lynchings, including one in Georgia in which an elderly man and an ex-slave uh, was lynched after he defended his neighbors against two white men who were trying to, to rape uh, his neighbor's uh, young uh, daughters. Uh, the NAACP worked very hard to get the truth of that out to show that a man had been lynched for trying to protect uh, his people. Uh, and then this led into a, a struggle to try and get a federal anti-lynching law passed. And although that failed, it's, it was part of this part of this process, part of the, the three-front fight uh, in 1919. And the fight continues um, um, after 1919, um, including um, things like veterans continuing to be a force behind uh, resistance and part of the freedom struggle and um, a number of uh, wartime riots during World War II. I wonder if you would um, sort of talk a little bit about this uh, sort of long reach, I guess, of, of 1919, because there are, again, a lot of um, really interesting uh, resonances, uh, some with contemporary issues like voter suppression and um, um, and other, other things that are very interesting and timely. Sure. Um, in the in the conclusion, I I try to trace, uh, as you said, the long reach, of, and and place um, what I've focused on um, the three front war against racial violence in the context of the long freedom struggle uh, of the twentieth century, um, and we can we see resonance, we see inspiration, we see continuation of that three front war. Uh, in the Harlem Renaissance, uh, during World War II, um, which is another war to make the world safer democracy. I think a great figure who shows the continuity uh, of 1919 or its continuation is A. Philip Randolph, um, a socialist uh, in 1919 and editor of the, of the Messenger, a black monthly. Um, he was one of the most eloquent voices of the New Negro Movement, uh, in 1919, and a great celebrant of, of armed resistance. Um, by the World War II era, he had moved away from socialism. He was a union leader of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, um, but he was no less committed to, to racial equality. Um, and when President Roosevelt refused to act to end discrimination in the war industries, uh, which were booming and putting people back to work at the end of the, the Great Depression, but just before the U.S. entered the war, Randolph organized the March on Washington movement and said, I'm going to bring hundreds of thousands of loyal black Americans to the Capitol to, to march for their right to work and fight for their country. Uh, and this pressured Roosevelt into signing an executive order banning discrimination in, in federal contracts and in hiring uh, in defense plants. Um, this is what the the new Negroes of the World War One era had been been working for, and 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 they continued to do so with with new people joining um, this this larger mission in in World War Two uh, with Randolph's March on Washington movement, and that carries right over into the late forties, into the fifties, and into the civil rights uh, movement. And later in the conclusion, I I point out a parallel between the events uh, I talk about in the book about Bogalusa, Louisiana, one of the examples of economic exploitation in 1919, and what goes on in Bogalusa in the 1960s uh, when civil rights organizers are, are violently targeted and uh, black self-defense forces uh, form uh, the deacons for defense uh, to provide protection. There's another good example of this continuation of the three-front war throughout the long freedom struggle. We have uh, taken up a, a lot of your time, and I uh, really appreciate uh, uh, you discussing the book with us. Um, can you tell us uh, what you're working on now? Uh, sure. I, 
I um, haven't started my next project. I'm considering two different uh, projects, both of which grow out of uh, this book. Um, the first would be sort of a collection of documents and readings uh, on the Chicago race riot designed for classroom use. So uh, I'm seriously considering building uh, off the 1919 book to do something like that. Um, the other project, which I envision is an article, but perhaps a book, is a study of how exile was used as a tool of white supremacy. Because one thing that struck me as I did the research and wrote this book was how often leaders of towns in the South and elsewhere um, would try to deal with residents, black residents, they considered troublemakers by ordering them to leave town. Um, this occurred in Longview, and, and when the, the so-called, the alleged troublemakers didn't leave, that leads to the, to the pogrom, to the racial violence there. But I'm interested in finding out how um, frequently and how uh, this tactic was used, this, this, this ordering of an exile, and, and how widespread it was. So um, uh, after, after a breather from this book, maybe I'll turn to that. Okay, well, both of those sound like really great projects, and I, I definitely uh, look forward to hearing um, more about them as, as they develop. Um, so, well, thank you. Yeah, and uh, thank you again uh, very much for coming on the show. Uh, folks, we've been uh, we've had the pleasure of speaking with Professor David Kugler, author of 1919, The Year of Racial Violence, How African Americans Fought Back. Thank you again, David, for coming on the show. Oh, yes, and, and thank you, Mary, for, for hosting and, and asking such great questions and, and having me on. Thank you.